You know, there are some crazy, crazy myths about the Talmud, Jewish literature. We'll talk about it today. It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, friends, to The Line of Fire. This is Michael Brown. I'm absolutely delighted to be with you on this thoroughly Jewish Thursday. Uh, Especially delighted, extra delighted. I'll tell you why in a moment. Okay, after the broadcast, literally, immediately after the broadcast, I get in the car with my assistant, Dylan, and he brings me to the airport. We're flying to Kennedy Airport and from there to Israel to arrive one day before our tour group. So please pray for grace on the trip and those saying, oh, I wish I could go. We actually set dates already for next year. First time, two consecutive years, God willing, but we set dates already for next May. So perhaps you can join us in May of 2020, God willing. But uh, we're going to take your Jewish-related calls today, 866-348-7884, 3-4-TRUTH. Any Jewish-related call of any kind about Judaism, Jewish tradition, state of Israel today, Messianic prophecy, Jewish objections to Jesus, a Hebrew question, or joy to take your calls. And I'm going to dispel some common anti-Semitic myths. And, you know, these days, for the last 20, 30 years— Things can spread so quickly through internet, and and now more than ever, that there can be something completely bogus, complete lie, complete nonsense, a quote that's fabricated, or someone misheard it and misattributed it, whatever it is, and next thing it's out there, and then it's repeated, and it's repeated, and it's on this website, and this one quotes it in an article, and it, and it, it gives the veneer of credibility. He's like, oh, these all these different websites quoted. Yeah, well, they got it from here, and, and they got it from there, and it, it comes from nowhere. Ultimately, someone misheard it or made it up or reported it. But through the centuries, many Jews have lost their lives because of all kinds of crazy lies. And some of them are believed until this day, especially in the Muslim world. Yes, that's the truth. Now, this has been... On my mind extra in recent days because I have just finished revising and updating Our Hands Are Stained With Blood. The publisher came to me last year and said, look, the book has been a classic. and It's all to God's glory, all by his grace. It's been out continuously since 1992. It continues to sell. There are Messianic congregations. If you're going to become a member, you're required to read that book. There are the ministries before joining, working with them, you're required to read the book. God knows how intensely he broke my heart in writing the book and how deeply he called me to pray for the impact and distribution of the book before it came out. So what happened was I've been wanting to update it, add a lot of information on a lot of different fronts, uh, revise some things here and there where we could now sharpen the discussion with further developments and things, update the bibliographies, 
So I knew it was going to be a lot of work and a serious enterprise, but we knew the importance of it. So God willing, late summer, around August, the new edition will be out. And I spent a lot of time adding notes, adding anecdotes, adding stories, adding illustrations, adding Bible interpretation, and keeping it in the same style and flow and focus and intensity. So in doing it, I've had to deal with some of the ridiculous lies about the Jewish people and Judaism. So I, I want to give you an example. I want to give you an example. 866-348-7884 with your Jewish-related questions. So one of the objections that I dealt with in the first edition of Our Hands Are Stained With Blood was this. The Talmud not only condones child molestation, bestiality, and other forms of immorality, it actually sanctions them. So in the first edition, I wrote aside from the fact that neither Jesus nor the apostles ever charged even the worst of Jewish leadership with such sins. Jewish history testifies to the exact opposite of this groundless slander. It is universally recognized that observant Jewish communities have an extraordinarily low rate of crime, sexual immorality, and perversion. Yet these well-known facts have not stopped some Christian authors from completely twisting the words of the Talmud, taking quotes entirely out of context, and presenting the Talmudic rabbis as perverts. And by the way, if you want to understand what the Talmud says, I recommend you ask a rabbi, not someone filled with anti-Jewish sentiments. It's also strange that these same rabbis can be accused of being strict legalists in one breath, well, in the next breath, they're accused of being sensual libertarians. But here's one of the accusations, and this is in the updated new edition I added this. Are you ready? I said it would take too much time here to examine some of the most common misrepresentations of the Talmud, but one case in point will suffice. Critics say that the Talmud sanctions child abuse since the Talmud states, you ready? It was taught, Rabbi Shimon ben Yochai stated, a proselyte who is under the age of three years and one day is permitted to marry a priest. For it is said, but all the women children that have not known men by lying with them keep for yourselves. And Phineas surely was with them. Consequently, we're told by a concerned Christian minister. Oh, yeah. Ben Yochai's permission for sex with three-year-old girls stands for all time. And this concerned Christian minister adds, in order to stem the plague of child abuse within Orthodox Judaism, Israel's Supreme Rabbinic Court of Appeals needs to confront pedophilia in the Talmud and declare it no longer halakhic, no longer legal. As if Orthodox Jewish men are marrying and having relations with three-year-olds. I know it sounds crazy, but you, hey, didn't you hear? Didn't you hear the quote? Let me read it to you. Rabbi Shimon ben Yochai stated, a proselyte who's under the age of three years and one day is permitted to marry a priest. For it is said, but all the women, children that have not known men by lying with them, keep for yourself and Phineas surely was with them. So what's the Talmud actually saying? It's not hard to find out. It's really not hard to find out if someone wants to. So, the Talmud is referring to the age when a girl converts to Judaism, not the age when she can be sexually joined to a man. So if she converted before the age of three, she was fit for a priest. That's what it's about. All right. 
if she converted after three, she wasn't. So if her family converted to Judaism and she was two years old, so yeah, they're all considered Jews, but the older women, let's say she had an older sister who was 10, they converted at the same time. She would not be allowed to marry a priest because priests could only marry certain people. But if she converted before she was three, then there was a principle that's derived from these other passages that basically makes her pure enough that she could then marry a priest. That's all it is. That's it. No perversion, no wild scandal, nothing whatsoever. Here, so here's an expanded translation. And by the way, available online. Uh, yeah, I own the, the books, but this is available online. So the Gemara, which is the Talmud, cites another ruling of Rabbi Shimon ben Yochai, also related to the discussion of defining who is considered a virgin. It is taught in a, a rabbinic source that Rabbi Shimon ben Yochai says a female convert who converted when she was less than three years old and one day is permitted to marry into the priesthood. As is stated, but all the women, children have not known man by lying with them, keep alive for yourselves. This verse indicates that these women were fit for all the warriors, and since Phineas the priest was with them, it is clear that young converts are permitted to marry priests. That's that's it. You mean it's not like this horrific, monstrous thing that they're sanctioning pedophilia? No, of course not. God forbid. You say, no, no, no. You're playing games, Mike Brown. We know your type. When people post, you're a liar, and you know it. I mean, they, they first misunderstand me, then they falsely accuse me, and they say, you're a liar, and you know it. It's like, yeah, poor souls. Mike Brown, you're not telling the whole truth because you know elsewhere the Talmud talks about a little girl. She's like two years old, and she's violated. It's nothing. It's nothing. Talmud doesn't care. Yeah. What it's talking about is who is considered a virgin. What if, God forbid something happened to a little girl. She was violated by a man when she was two years old. She's still considered a virgin in Jewish law. It's as if there was an accident with a stick or something like that. And that's what it says. It's nothing. It should not be held against her. She should still be considered a virgin. So, you know, it's, it's maddening on the one hand when you have these crazy attacks. Oh, yeah, and there are things in the Talmud. It's two and a half million words. There's strange things in there and different things in there and, and things that are unusual, for sure. But sanction it? No, 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 God forbid. If anything, you start studying Talmud, you're like, no, this is a lot of laws and customs and can do this and can't do this, dispute about this and dispute about that. Because in Judaism, study of the law is the highest form of worship. That's, that's how it's viewed. So to intensely engage in God's commandments and to have intense discussion about what you can do and can't do and what's forbidden and what's forbidden is considered to be a, a form of worship and you're engaging in God's holy laws and commandments. But l- listen, I have spent a good part of the last 47 years, I think almost a half century, in dialogue with traditional Jews, in dialogue with ultra-Orthodox Jews, some of whom I've gotten to know very well, some of whom I've spent hours with in private. Rabbi Shmuel is Orthodox, not ultra-Orthodox. We spent many, many hours. And, and yeah, there, there are things, of course, we differ with profoundly to the core of our beings. I mean, belief in Jesus and what it implies, profoundly we differ. And other things we differ on. 
but when I, if I'm talking to, to one of these, and you got, look, there's some counter missionaries I, I wouldn't trust at all. And just like there's some preachers I wouldn't trust at all. There's hypocrisy everywhere. We understand that. And there's scandals. Yeah, you have scandals. Do you ever have a sex scandal in the evangelical church? Has there ever been a scandal with someone committing adultery? Ever had a scandal in the Catholic church? Uh-huh. Yeah, you get some scandals in traditional Judaism too. But overall, in terms of crime rate, in terms of sexual immorality and abuse, the, the, the numbers are, are way, way low. And there are, there are ultra-Orthodox rabbis I know that as far as human ethics, they're as ethical as anybody you'll ever meet. And wanting to do what's upright as much as anybody you'll meet, that comes from their traditions. All right, we're going straight to the phones. Now's a good time to call 866-34-TRUTH. Also tell you why I'm so happy to be here today. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into the Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Oh, yeah. Just a matter of hours. Well, long hours, but God willing to be in Israel where... That will be the native language spoken around me. It's Thoroughly Jewish Thursday. Michael Brown, delighted to be here. 866-34-TRUTH. Any Jewish related question you have of any kind. I'm about to go to the phones, but this morning I had to appear in court as a witness. There was just an issue where I I had to testify and uh, told to get there at 10 in the morning. Nancy with me. And maybe they'll get to the case by four, maybe not. May have to come another time. And no cell phones allowed. No, I realized we didn't realize until we got there. And we didn't know if we'd be able to do live radio, let alone, oh, oh the, the case might not be heard till five. And then maybe not today, maybe another day. And <laughs> anyway, so, so. We're like, uh, probably I got to fly to Israel. I got to leave for Israel at four. And live radio is not even going to bring up radio. So thankfully, we were able to, to get things taken care of and, uh, and move on by like 1231. So we still weren't, didn't know if we'd do live radio until then. So all is well. That's why I'm extra happy to be here to take your calls live. And we start in Battle Creek, Michigan. Jacob, hey, how's the weather where you are, bud? Well, uh, this morning, Dr. Brown, it was negative 15 with a negative 40 wind chill. So it's Ooh. a little frisk up here. Yeah, but, well, uh, at least you're a bit more used to it than, say, someone living in Florida, but that's that's rough. It's probably the coldest it's been up here in probably 10 years, I would say. Got but, it. Uh, yeah, let me get to my question here. I appreciate it. Yeah. You know, I just want to say I appreciate you, too. And, and uh, if I was in your position and had to leave 4 o'clock for Israel— you know, I might just take the extra hour off and have someone else do the live show for me or something. But you're dedicated, and I appreciate that. And, and uh, it's just awesome to uh, be able to talk to you and appreciate you. Well, thanks. Thanks. It's my joy, totally. Totally my joy. But go ahead, sir. Yeah, so my question is, um, it's referring to Genesis uh, chapter 1, verse 26. And what I'm trying to figure out is what how the Jewish uh, society of the Old Testament 
viewed the word image there when God said, let us create man in our own image. And the reason I'm asking is because <clears throat> I think that understanding how um, the Old Testament uh, Old Testament people viewed God and uh, how they viewed God is um, is a good way of how we can look to how we should view God. And, and I guess the second part of my question is, is that word image in relation to the nature of God being um, that we are creating God's image, body, soul, and spirit? Is that what God was referring to when he said the right. image of God? So for, first thing is, the main Jewish commentaries we have on books of the Bible come from after the time of Jesus, and then in some cases a thousand years after the time of Jesus and, and later. And uh, you, you have homiletical commentaries that are early, but in terms of commentary that we'd be used to verse by verse, you don't have those until about a thousand years after the time of Jesus. So if you're trying to find out Jewish thinking in his day, if we have evidence from the Dead Sea Scrolls or some early traditions preserved in later rabbinic literature, we get an idea. But we, we, uh, you'd otherwise have to look at, all right, how is this translated in the Septuagint, in the, in the, the Greek translation uh, by Jewish scholars a couple hundred years before the time of Jesus? How is it translated in the Targum? That's the Aramaic translation paraphrase. And see what we can glean from there. And then even the idea of man as body, soul, and spirit, uh, Paul lays that out, spiritual body, in 1 Thessalonians 5.23, but that's more of a Greek way of dividing the human being. Uh, the, the more Old Testament way would be body, soul, or flesh, spirit. So, you know, the, the inside, the outside. So even in that respect, the question would presume a few things. But the, the Hebrew word for image is, is selim. And selim could be used for making an idol. Like, don't make any image right? A graven image. You could have one word used, but this is a, this is a related word. Uh, and it's, it's the word for image. Likeness uh, is, is broader. Rashi, who is the, the foremost traditional Jewish commentator, speaking on Genesis one twenty six, he explains B'tzalmenu in our image as meaning in our form. In other words, there's something tangible about it. And then after our likeness, it's not in our likeness, but after our likeness, he says to understand and to discern. Uh, so in other words, the one is taken as more physical and outward, and the other is taken as more inward. That being said, Jacob, Judaism believes that God is incorporeal, that God is not bodily in any way, that he is a spirit being, and therefore if we talk about the hand of the Lord or the arm of the Lord or the eye of the Lord, it's all metaphorical. It would technically be called an anthropomorphism, speaking about God in human terms. The same way if you talked about the jealousy of God or the anger of God, that would be called an anthropopathism, which is speaking of God's emotions in human terms. Anthropomorphism is speaking him of his, of, of, of him in a physical way. So, Judaism does not think that God looks like us in that regard. Even if you have visions in the Bible of him like that, Judaism would say that, that God does not have a form that we can observe or look at, and therefore they would not think 
that, for example, when we're created in the image of God, that that means that God looks like a human being. And that's why we look like human beings because we're created in his image. Judaism would not think that a human being is body, soul, spirit. So also God is body, soul, spirit. And again, that would be a more of a Greek way. Rather that we are rational creatures like him, that we have morality like him, that we have ability to love and hate, that we can uh, create, be creative, that we are spiritual beings. That would be the extent that Judaism would see us as created in his form and his image. Uh, even though you could argue that the word image is, is referring to a, a bodily replica. Gotcha. What, what, what uh, position do you take as far as um, what you think that translation means? And is it referring to, um, is it referring to, uh, I guess I use the word Trinity, even though Trinity is not a biblical word, but like the triune nature of God being Jesus. I believe, I believe Jesus is God. I believe the Holy Spirit is God. I believe Father is God. And so having that um, three in one, is, is, do you take that stance on, uh, on what that means in Genesis 1.26? Right. Um, you, you do have the Spirit of God in Genesis 1 at work. We know from the New Testament that the Father creates all things through the Son. So let's say this. It is in harmony with God creating as Trinity. Hence, in our image, in our likeness, because it is Father, Son, Spirit speaking. Normally, however, when God speaks, he speaks as, as one. It's not plural, it's as one. So if this is speaking of God creating in triunity, then it makes perfect sense. It works well. You can't necessarily prove it from the Hebrew, but the Hebrew is absolutely in harmony with it. Now, do I believe that God looks like a human being, and that's why we look like human beings. That, In other words, when Isaiah sees the Lord, or when Moses and Aaron, Nadav and Avihu and the 70 elders in Exodus 24 saw the Lord, or Ezekiel 1 where he sees the Lord, uh, and, and it, it, there's someone sitting on a throne, right? And it describes his hands and his feet, and, and it describes his head and so on. At least that's how God has made himself known. And it could well be that he created us to look like him outwardly and inwardly, that, that we have the capacities that are uniquely God's. We're not God, obviously, but we have those capacities in terms of, of to love, to hate, to make moral choices, to have moral discernment, to be creative, to be artistic, etc., to, to grieve, to rejoice. All the things that, that are unique to our species come from being created in God's image. But could it also be that he does have a tangible form? You could say, yeah, that, that's certainly the way he's been seen. Whenever he's seen and makes himself known, unless he's appearing in a fire or something like that, that's how it is. I'm not going to dogmatically say that, that we're created in his image and therefore the father looks like this in terms of human form. Uh, but it, it could well be. That's how he certainly appears, A. And B, uh, it would be in harmony with the word sell them. Hey, Jacob, uh, stay out of the call, or you're probably hardy and used to it, but thank you for your questions. I, I hope, I hope I answered uh, And look, I want to be biblical. I don't want to go beyond scripture. The fact that God is spirit doesn't mean he's just like wind. You know what I'm saying? That I realized coming from a Jewish background, even though I wasn't religious, I knew that we believed in God's incorporeality. 
and therefore he was entirely spirit. And to me, that translated into abstract. Spirit, wind, like a magic carpet kind of swinging in and swinging out. Obviously, that's not what traditional Jews think. But it was only when I had been saved for some years that I realized that I did not fully recognize the tangibility of the spiritual realm. Yeah, I understood it. And I knew that God in eternal spirit created everything that is, created that which is visible. But the invisible is even more real than the visible. The invisible is eternal and the visible is temporal. And not only so, the invisible, we, we will, the invisible realm is a spiritual realm that is visible in itself. It's not visible to our physical eyes because of our limitations. But one day we're going to get spirit bodies. Yeah, that's true. All right, we'll be right back. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. You know, whoa, welcome to Thoroughly Jewish Thursday. Michael Brown, just 30 minutes before leaving for the airport to begin my journey to Tel Aviv, Israel to get there one day before our tour group. If you have a Jewish-related question of any kind, 866-34-TRUTH. Going to go to your calls momentarily, looking at a headline from today, the Times of Israel, string of attacks on Jews rattles Brooklyn neighborhood. NYPD opens hate crimes investigations, beefs up presence in Crown Heights after a series of unprovoked assaults on identifiably Jewish residents. Um, these things happen from time to time. And anytime any group living peacefully is then targeted by another group simply because of their religion or their race or their ethnicity, that's ugly and that's scary to that community. It's one thing when you have gang warfare back and forth, that's terrible and tragic, but folks are provoking one another and challenging one another. But when you have folks trying to mind their own business and live their lives, and then they get attacked because of the color of their skin, or because of their religion, or because of their ethnicity, uh, that's, that's ugly, and it's scary for the community. And unfortunately, uh, whether it's happening in Brooklyn or it's happening somewhere else, it's happening around the world against Jewish people. Anti-Semitism is tragically alive and well. In my book, Our Hands Are Stained With Blood, as we have completely gone through it, revised, updated, added lots and lots of tremendous information and discussion. Uh, the new edition coming out, God willing, in August. I, I'm struck once again, writing the book originally in 1991, and then now working on it again. So almost 30 years later, uh, certain things, it's not just they never change, they keep getting worse in terms of Jew hatred. At the same time, God continues to work, God continues to back and many, many Christians around the world stand with and pray for Israel. 866-34-TRUTH. Uh, let's go to Jody in Idaho. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Well, thank you, and I appreciate uh, you taking my call. But I want to, first of all, thank you for your program, and you have a great outreach to the Jews. And I was wanting to know the... Uh, 
two, I got two questions. I was wanting to know the key passages that is best to go over uh, with our Jewish friends on how to witness to them. What is the key passages from the Old Testament to witness to them? And also, the other question would be, what happened to the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Do they still exist? Yes, sir. So let's answer the second question first. In the days of Jesus, the Jewish historian Josephus mentions three principal groups, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes, who are the likely authors of most of the Dead Sea Scrolls. There were other groups, political groups like the Sicarii and groups like the Therapeutae, but they were less significant groups. So what happened to these different groups? The Sadducees were very much temple-based, and with the destruction of the temple— and with the destruction of Jewish sovereignty, they, were, they controlled a lot of the leadership. They were basically decimated and lost to history. Now, there are some who claim that they were the legitimate Jews, that they rejected the traditions of the Pharisees, and they have continued until this day, and that they are the Karaite Jews today, which is a, a very small group. But let's put that aside and say, generally speaking, the Sadducees as a major movement was largely lost to history. The Essenes also largely lost to history. Uh, Many of them had already separated from the temple and thought it was corrupt, but the Romans effectively destroyed them and wiped them out, and they were not able to continue, however many survived, in a tangible way over the centuries. The Pharisees survived in what is called traditional Judaism or rabbinic Judaism. Basically, the Pharisees over the next centuries now became known as the rabbis. So the the authors of the Talmud, of traditional Jewish literature to this day, uh, one of my friends is a counter-missionary, ultra-Orthodox Jew, so, you know, long beard, black coat, the whole bit, you know, studies many hours every day. And he uh, refers to himself as a Pharisee. He calls himself your Pharisee friend. And that's his way of saying we go straight back to the Pharisees. Now, bear in mind that in traditional Judaism, being a Pharisee is a good thing. When we hear it in Christianity, it means being a hypocrite and a legalist. In Judaism, it's a good thing. And traditional Judaism doesn't accept the very negative outlook that's found often about the Pharisees in the New Testament. So that's that's explanation there. As for uh, as for sharing the gospel with a Jewish person, if the person is not a religious Jew, the person is more secular, they may be very open to you just sharing the gospel with them like anyone else, sharing your testimony, talking to them about their own life, about sin, about their need for God, and you might as well quote John three sixteen. But if they say, "Look, I don't believe in the New Testament." I'm Jewish, then the very best single passage to point to is Isaiah 53 and ask them to read it out loud in an English translation they have and ask, who is that speaking about? To see if they can understand the idea that the Messiah came to die for our sins and that our own people didn't recognize him in doing so. That would be the number one passage to go to Isaiah 53, a great place 
to start, okay? Okay. I appreciate uh, your ministry, and uh, uh, and and you do a great job, and uh, I appreciate uh, your book on uh, on uh, counter or you know the uh, hyper grace book. But uh, this is the Jewish section, so yeah, we'll got it. Questions about that later. Yes, Thanks. sir. God bless. God bless. And Jody, if you want to get one book that'll orient you, that's a good book to give to a Jewish person, get the real kosher Jesus among my books. Just one book. If you're going to read it and then give it to a Jewish person, The Real Kosher Jesus, 866-34-TRUTH. We go to Jacob in Clarksville, Tennessee. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Afternoon, Dr. Brown. Okay, so my question is, uh, it's a two-part question. Uh, One is about the Hebrew word hodesh, and the other one would be the Hebrew word yom. Um, and my understanding, at least, of the word, the first word could be um, new moon and also month. And the other one, um, uh, as far as my understanding, the word yom could have several different meanings. Now, I have a whole lot of people in my family and in my circle who are very big on keeping uh, Shabbat, and everybody has different opinions on that. Um, but I was wondering... You'll see in, in Genesis uh, things such as in the evening in the morning, the first day, the evening in the morning, the second day, but you'll also hear um, God say statements like um, he called the light day. And when I open up the Hebrew and I look at the vowels, which I know we're not in the Semitic, but I understand that, that the vowels are different. So am I to understand the word day as uh, a 24-hour calendar date versus a um, time of daylight, like in John 11? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, let me, let me jump in. Yes, sir. Yeah, the first thing, the, the first word, chodesh, so you did a good job yeah. on it, but an uh, accent on the first syllable. Chodesh, in, in itself, it means month, but okay. it, is, it is a month from new moons. In, in other words, the, the months were tied in with, new moons or new moons were celebrated each month or recognized for their importance that the, the biblical calendar, the Jewish calendar was a lunar calendar versus a solar yeah. calendar. So Chadash is the word for new Chodesh is, is month, but again, a month and a new moon were very much interchangeable in terms of the beginning of the month and a new moon. There, okay. there's no issue in terms of the vowels with Yom uh, the the that that's not the question there whatsoever. So yeah, when they, the words were pronounced with vowels, but not written with vowels for many centuries. But okay. Yom simply means day, just like our English word day, meaning gotcha. it could be day and night, right? So that's yeah. daytime and nighttime, or uh, you had evening and morning, one day, day meaning twenty four hours. And then in Genesis 2, you have the expression beyom, meaning in, in the day that, which is literally yeah. when, that can be referring to several days, or you know when could be over a period of a month, or it could be referring to a minute. So the, the Hebrew word day in and of itself doesn't tell us anything about 24-hour or not, because it can be used for daytime just as well. So within Genesis 1, you, you have uh, that it can be used for daytime, or that it can be used for a 24-hour period, which would indicate yeah. it's just like our, our English word. And uh, let me say this. The whole debate about young earth versus old earth, that yeah. is a much bigger debate than the meaning of the Hebrew word yom. 
There are many, many other things that factor into that, and there are different arguments given both ways and different scientific things. But I would just encourage one thing uh, for, for you and your friends and family, Jacob, is to take hold of the spirit of Colossians 2 and not to make a focus on things like new moons or to recognize in celebrating Sabbath that that's the shadow and the substance is in the Messiah. The substance, the body of things is found in the Messiah. And, and therefore, therefore, the real emphasis needs to be on being in him, walking in him, fellowship with him, as opposed to observance of a day or celebration of a new moon or something like that, which, which I believe you would affirm in your heart as well. Hey, thank you, sir, for the call. Good speaking with you. 866-34-TRUTH. Uh, okay. I've got like 45 seconds before, uh, I go to the break. So I'm, I'm going to come back and let's see who's up next. Tyler, you're next. Then James, Jose, Philip, we'll get you as many as we can on the other side of the break, but please pray for a tour group traveling over some coming from parts of the country. that will be real cold. And there are, there are potential issues with, with flights being canceled and things like that. Uh, you can pray for, for, God's blessing on the tour. Uh, I'm really looking forward to this one as much as or more than any I've done. And boy, the tour is so far. People are really blessed. That's what blesses me, you know, because I'm a, I'm a steward. I'm, I'm conscientious of the fact that people are spending time and money on what could be a once-in-a-lifetime trip. And boy, oh boy, does it exceed expectations. There's just something special about Israel. And pray for some divine appointments. Pray for me to run into some religious Jews that know me from online and we get to meet face to face. Let's believe God that I'll come back with some stories about that. It's the Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into the line of fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, welcome to the Line of Fire. Michael Brown, thanks for joining us on this Thoroughly Jewish Thursday. By the way, tomorrow I'm going to be answering some fascinating Facebook questions that were posted. And then God willing, Monday, you'll be hearing me live from Israel. We get all connections established properly. We'll be broadcasting from Israel either way, but hopefully live from Israel on Monday. All right, Cumberland, Maryland. Tyler, welcome to the Line of Fire. Hello, Dr. Brown. Hey, so, um, I just had, uh, two short questions, uh, I'll try to make them as short as I can. Um, first off, I just want to thank you for your ministry. I really appreciate everything that you do, and it really helps me to find faith and stuff, especially whenever I deal with, uh, counter-missionary arguments and stuff. It's really good to have someone out there, you know, speaking about these things and taking a look at Scripture and, you know, breaking it down and giving, you know, information on these things according to Scripture and, you know, early Jewish commentary, so I do really appreciate that. And um, my question, uh, the first one is, I wanted to know, um, how do you, like, where do you go for information on the Dead Sea Scrolls and Septuagint, and how do we know the authenticity of these early Jewish writings? Yeah, and my, uh, uh, yeah go ahead. And my second question, I just want to ask you, um, like, uh, how do you... Uh, 
how do you manage to maintain faith whenever going through studying these things and and looking at these things through um you know with all the counter missionaries out there and stuff where do you find your faith and in what you believe yes sir so thanks for the the kind words and so glad we can be of help to you regarding the Dead Sea Scrolls the earliest copies of parts of the Hebrew Bible that we have and then other documents regarding the history of the composition of the Septuagint and then other ancient witnesses. There are quite a few good books on textual criticism of the Old Testament. I I just type that in uh, on Amazon, for example, Old Testament textual criticism. There are a few books that come up immediately and all the ones I'm looking at or or books that are considered reliable. Uh, You might want to get a a broader question. Are the Old Testament documents themselves reliable? Walter Kaiser has a good book on that. Are the Old Testament documents reliable? But otherwise, just just type in christianbook.com or Amazon. Type in textual criticism of the Old Testament or Old Testament textual criticism. You'll find some standard textbooks come up, and they'll give you all the information They'll give you all the background. Uh, a lot of times, if you have Bible software, they'll have some good Bible encyclopedias or dictionaries with them, and you'll have a lot of the information right there online. But if you just look up certain articles online, you don't. I can pretty well tell quickly if this is a good source or a bad source or, or how scholarly it is or isn't. Sometimes it's not always that easy. So the good textbooks or good respected Bible dictionaries and encyclopedias will give you background articles. As for maintaining faith, of course, God is the one that that helps us and strengthens us and keeps us. So I I give glory to him for strong faith in my life after 47 years in the Lord. But number one, he wonderfully saved me. He wonderfully, gloriously, radically saved me. And that salvation was so real and God working in my life in those early days and the Lord was so real and the fellowship I enjoyed with him those early years in the Lord, so so intense, so special, that um, it, it was hard for me not to believe in that regard. But from day one, I was challenged. From day one, when my, my dad lovingly said, it's great, you're off drugs, but now you need to talk to the local rabbi. And then the local rabbi started to raise questions. Then he brought me to meet other rabbis. And then all of my studies, all of them, through college and grad school. So my bachelor's, my master's, my PhD were all with not with people who didn't agree with me. Some were completely secular, some were atheistic and hostile, some were religious Jews, some were, but not a single one agreed with me. So from day one, I was challenged and I just determined I've got to follow the, I, I, I know that the Lord has saved me and changed me. I know the Bible's true, but these are serious challenges. I'm going to follow the truth. So I, I dug and I studied and I looked and I meditated and I looked at both sides and I got on my face and prayed for, for the courage to, to, to follow God's truth and told him I just wanted his truth. So uh, the truth stood. That's basically what it comes down to, that the challenges were superficial. The Jewish objections, as profound as they could be, fell short. The critical attempts to discredit the Bible fell short. So it was the combination of having a vibrant, solid relationship with God, Tyler, which is always critically important. It's not just in our heads. It's relationship, fellowship, right? Second Corinthians 13, 14, we have fellowship with the Holy Spirit. So we, we walk in that closely. 
We walk in intimacy with God, and, and then we see him working in our lives, and then we love him with all of our mind as well. So whatever questions come up, whatever issues we study, we look, we consider, and we find, hey, there are good reasons. That's why people are helped by my material, because I struggled. I was challenged. I was, I was asked tough questions. I didn't have the books on Jewish objections to go to. I had to write them. So I had to go through the fire with my hope that we could help others not having to go through it. But I, I went through it, came out stronger on the other end. And I remember in grad school, all right, I looked at, okay, here's yet another objection. It's like, let me look at it. Let me evaluate it. At a certain point, you think, okay, I've, I've, I've done my level best to show intellectual integrity. I, I, I think I can rest peacefully in the midst of that. Thank you, sir, for your question. 866-34-TRUTH. Uh, let's go to James on Long Island. Thanks for calling the line of fire. Thank you for taking my call, uh, Dr. Brown. Uh, I know you're short in time, so I'm going to make it quick because I really have two questions. The first question that I have, as I read um, Isaiah 7, it seems to me that before Isaiah even went to Ahaz, God already said he was going to send uh, Israel into captivity because it says the name Shir Jeshub means the remnant shall return. So if they were still in the land, why would the remnant still return if the group did not leave yet? Back, and, and by the way, if you go back to Isaiah 6, the end of that chapter is a judgment chapter. That judgment is coming, and Shari Yashuv can have the, the, the twofold meaning, a remnant will return slash remnant will repent. Yes, yeah, so okay. Isaiah already knew that judgment was coming, but you don't know how soon. You don't know. You always hope maybe with repentance it can be put off, right? Okay. But Isaiah says in the eighth chapter that his children were actually signs. So yeah, you name a kid, Shari Yashuv, a remnant will repent slash return. You're saying that there's going to be judgment. Absolutely. He, he knew it was coming. Okay, now, yes, sir. Now, now here's, here's the second point. Now, I don't agree with it, but I have to ask it. Yeah. Would God, al- would God allow sin to happen in order for prophecy to fulfill? Here's, here's the, the reason why. The name Bathsheba, I've been, I've, been, I've been researching it today. The name Bathsheba means daughter of Hoth, or house of Hoth, or daughter of Hoth. Now, how is it that Solomon, which was prophesied in part in Second Samuel seven twelve, to be the son to build the house, is born to the daughter of Oath. Now, was Bathsheba placed there by God in some way or some form? Yeah. Because doesn't the name somehow insinuate that the Oath is going to come from this woman? Yeah. So that's that's a fascinating thought, James, and I, I love you digging into this. It's easy to read too much. Into names, but Sheva can either mean daughter of seven or daughter of an oath, as you said. Uh, it's related related roots. So uh, for sure, uh, that could have been part of her name. There, there could have been an oath that she was born in response to an oath that was given, or whatever. But you don't want to read too much into names be, because um, even look, my name is Michael, Michael, who is like God. When my parents named me Michael, they weren't consciously thinking, let's name him who is like God because we're worshiping God. They picked the name Michael for other reasons. Uh, So we don't want to read too much into that. But to answer your larger question, God's a redeemer. It's not that God makes one person sin. Here's a guy upright, fearing God, trying to please the Lord. And God says, I'm going to make you get drunk and sleep with a prostitute 
And then that prostitute is then going to get angry and then murder this person. And I'm, I'm making the whole thing happen so that out of that, someone can be born out of that, that ends up coming to the Lord because the hardship, that's not what happens. It's that God allows us to make choices and he, in his sovereignty and in his wisdom, that he carries out his will through choices we make, meaning he's a redeemer. So, he did not make people crucify his son. Rather, he put his son in a certain place at a certain time so that those with wicked hearts would carry out their wicked desires and crucify him, all foreknown by God. And through that, he saves the world. As opposed to taking someone who's God-fearing, honoring the Lord, praying, fasting, and saying, I'm going to make you kill my son through thus and such. So that's why even though the first child born of Bathsheba dies, then the second child, Solomon, is loved by Lord by the Lord. Uh, Yedidiah is, is Jedidiah looks like in English. Yedidiah is beloved of the Lord. And Shalom has to do with, with peace from Shalom. But uh, that's what the name he's given, even though he was born out of a relationship that came about through adultery and then murder. David repented and God redeemed it. Last point. David's adultery and murder did come back on him and he did end up reaping what he sowed. Hey, I wish I'd get to all of your calls. We'll open up the phones more, God willing, from Israel to take more calls. By the way, question, did Jesus study Talmud? Talmud doesn't come into its final form until five or 600 years after the time of Jesus, but he would have been familiar with many of the traditions that later come into Talmud. Hey, friends, Thanks for your prayers as I head out right now to the airport. Israel, here we come.